Welcome to All the Right Notes, a podcast brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, and today's episode dedicated to musicians and mental health. I'm Charlotte Smith, editor of BBC Music Magazine, and I'm here with leading cellist Lara van der Hayden. Lara has achieved a huge amount for such a young performer, winning BBC Young Musician of the Year in 2012 at the age of 15, and performing as a soloist with top orchestras, including the BBC Scottish Symphony and BBC National Orchestra of Wales, the Royal and BBC Philharmonic Orchestras, the Academy of St Martin in the Fields, and English Chamber Orchestra. She also performs as a key member of the Kaleidoscope Chamber Collective alongside pianist Tom Poster and violinist Elena Urioste and regularly collaborates in chamber performances with the likes of pianist Jams Coleman and violist Timothy Ridout. In 2019, she was named BBC Music Magazine's Newcomer of the Year for her debut album 1948 on Champs Hill Records. And in 2022, she released Pahadka, her first album for Chandos, including works by Vorjak, Janacek and Kadai. So, Lara, it's a great pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for having me. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your career, how you gravitated towards the cello and the challenges that you faced. And then perhaps we can talk more generally about the issues and situations that can affect the mental health of performers. So let's talk a little bit about the very early years. Wikipedia, which we know is absolutely a trusted resource, tells me that you began by playing the recorder at the age of four and then piano at five and finally cello at six, followed by attending the Royal College of Music's junior department. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. (laughs) Wow, excellent. (laughs) I was really, really lucky to grow up in a very uh, musical and sort of artistic village. Mm -hmm. And so my recorder teacher who I think also taught me how to read music. She also taught me how to make millionaire's shortbread and how to knit, which I've, I think I've basically forgotten how to do both of those things, <laughs> but it was just like a wonderful, wholesome beginning to music making. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. So what actually drew you to the cello? To be honest, my parents chose the cello for me. My dad is an amateur cellist as well, and I think they felt it suited me. But the main reason why I think I started the cello was because they were really good friends and still are with my first cello teacher, Marina Logie, and she lives in the village and is a fantastic teacher. So that's probably, yeah, the reason why I played the cello. <laughs> <laughs> and did you enjoy playing for audiences when we, when you were young, or was it more sort of a fascination with the sound and the music that, that kept you interested? I think looking back at videos of myself when when I was that age, it looked like I really enjoyed performing. <laughs> um, I took part in sort of small festivals for children. And I guess we had some house concerts sometimes. Uh, and my first performance with orchestra was when I was nine with the local chamber orchestra. And my I remember my mum would always cook the food for them. Um, <laughs> and so they, they loved her a lot. Yeah, so I, I think back then, yeah, definitely... And enjoyed performing. So that was quite a wholesome kind of friendly experience. Then. Very much so. Kind of nice introduction to it. So obviously you must have progressed very rapidly to then win BBC Young Musician at 15. Now you were 15, right? I've got mm. that right. Good. Excellent. Okay. Um, so was there any element of culture shock about suddenly performing at that scale? Although obviously you'd been performing with orchestras when you were nine, so maybe it was okay. No, there, there definitely was a huge <laughs> shock. Um, I remember very distinctly that for the actual final, I i mean, I, I'm sure I was nervous, but I wasn't as nervous as I became afterwards. And I felt really lucky to be playing with the orchestra and I just the whole experience was a really positive one and that being said I I mentioned that I had performed with an orchestra at nine but I hadn't really done much 
apart from that and maybe a, a few performances. So I really wasn't used to playing with with orchestras of that standard or orchestras at all. And then the day after I won, I kind of felt the the nerves and the pressure enter my my system. Yeah. So that that was a bit of a shock, I think. Yeah, because yeah, actually I've heard Nicola Benedetti say a similar thing about when she won BBC Young Musician, she basically said that she felt a bit overwhelmed that she suddenly had all these concerts coming at her and she didn't actually have the repertoire to back it up and had to sort of go away and, and really think about it and prepare herself mentally for it. Was was that sort of a similar situation for you or was it slightly different? Definitely the feeling of being a bit overwhelmed by it. I think I was, and, and still am, surrounded by a really good support network. So I think we were very wise in how much we took on. And also my then teacher, Leonid Gorokov, was really good at making sure that I had lots of repertoire. So throughout the competition, I think some people enter and then don't really even plan to the final, mm-hmm. um, whereas he had fully created a whole program for me which meant that I I knew what I would play if <laughs> it happened I didn't think it was going to happen but, sure yeah, um, yeah. That, that I was ready for that so that that was really smart of him and I had also heard from some other people who had been through that experience that it's you know a big panic if you don't have the repertoire ready yeah yeah so I think what came afterwards was very different to what had come before in terms of you know like big recording contracts and everything we decided to leave those until I felt I was ready so yeah maybe not quite the level of what what Nikki went through yeah yeah sure sure I mean obviously your career now seems quite really balanced nicely balanced between chamber and orchestral and all sorts of things I mean I'm assuming that that's like a very deliberate choice on your part definitely I mean I think with anything it's all sort of a balance of luck and choice and it's sort of grown this way but it is exactly the balance that I would like I love having a big variety of things and I think doing just one thing would would get pretty tedious after a while (laughs) so I, I love having the balance yeah yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more generally. Um, I know you've you've written for the Strad because um, I was editor when you did, and you've spoken to at home with the London Mozart players about overcoming performance nerves and particularly about the importance of talking about this aspect of a musician's life because there's sometimes a bit of a stigma attached to it. So tell me, as a performer, was there a time when nerves seemed to be taking over, and what did you do to counter that or to? to deal with that. I, I like to be as honest and as open as possible mm. about all of this. I think gradually, as I've gotten older, the nerves have maybe gotten worse. Okay. Um, I think there was definitely a hit potentially after lockdown where I think my nerves were quite bad. It varies a lot from what the project is. I've, I get the most nervous in concertos and maybe, maybe duo performances, depends on my mood. I feel like it's quite a chemical thing. If if my brain is sort of erring in one direction, then I'll start to get really paranoid and worried during a concert. Often in chamber music, I feel like I focus a lot on trying to uplift and support other people. Mm-hmm. So then the focus is less on me and how yeah. I feel. Yeah. But then if, for example, in, in a piece, I suddenly have a melody and all eyes are on me, so to say, then, then I get a big hit of nerves just for that particular line. Mm-hmm. It, it's something that maybe isn't spoken about enough and also isn't spoken about enough in teaching in general where you know if you're prepared enough if you work hard enough you shouldn't be nervous and for me sometimes it was the case that the pieces I'd played the most and actually I really didn't struggle with technically or anything I would become more and more afraid of particularly with memory so I actually don't play from memory anymore um, and I 
I feel like maybe someday I will tackle that and try <laughs> try to play from memory again. But of course, the longer you don't play from memory, the the harder it feels. But I think it's also something I've I've spoken about this with a lot of people who have similar issues. And playing from memory in in the way that we live our lives as musicians is is less of a possibility than it used to be because most of us are playing a huge range of repertoire from one day to the next. And I think the memorizing concertos and stuff like that stems from a time when, you know, you'd be touring the same concerto for half a year. And mm. that's that's very different to playing Dvorak concerto and then the next day playing a full chamber program and the day after, you know. So it's really also about having the time to to spend on memorization. Yeah, it's a lot for your brain to take in. Why do you think, I mean, it's a strange thing that the mind does that. It's something that you know really, really well. It suddenly becomes obsessed with the fact that it might go wrong. Is that basically what's happening? And, and how how do you actually deal with that? Yeah, that, that's, that, <laughs> that's, that's yeah. the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's exactly what happens. And yeah. I've, I've listened to some podcasts about, I think it's called choking, which, uh-huh. you know, baseball players and basketball players have where they suddenly forget how to do the things that are most natural to them. Right. And it's, it's something about sort of switching your consciousness state. So something that you can fully do in your subconscious, you become really conscious of it all yes. of a sudden. Yes. And that's, I think very much what happens. And the other thing is that you kind of need to practice the performance state to be able to practice getting that mindset right. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to create that in a practice room. You know, you can't create the feeling of sitting in front of an orchestra and in front of a whole hall of people. And that's one of the things that I think I've struggled with the most is that I, the only way you can practice it is by having the performance. So I definitely feel that my nerves get better when I'm playing more. It makes a lot of sense that you just get used to it, basically. Yeah, whereas, I mean, lockdown would have been harder because, of course, that took you away from performing for a period of time and then you had to kind of build up the resistance again almost exactly. afterwards. Yeah. Exactly, Yeah, so. Yeah, um, so what I do in the moment, I mean, as I said, what I've done now is that I don't play from memory anymore. Mm-hmm. The main reason that I don't do that is that I felt that the stress it was giving me was totally outweighing the positives that memorizing could do. I think being able to try and memorize a piece makes you know it really well. And also there's sort of a visual aspect on stage that I think audience members enjoy this aspect of looking at someone and thinking, oh, they, you know, know it so well from memory. I was just obsessing over whether I knew the next note all the time. And, and that's, not very nice. Well, and, and, and no, no, absolutely. And I mean, do do you find that 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 talking to other musicians helped you, or has helped you, or continues to help you at being open about it, rather than just bottling it up, basically? Yeah, definitely. I think there are so many different types of musicians as well. You know, I know I know someone who basically learns everything from memory, and that's the way that she's done it for a really long time, and it works for her. I do actually feel that like my memory isn't very good, so maybe it would help me to try and memorize things. Yeah, and then I know other people who have the same feeling as me that they've just got too much repertoire to balance and don't feel that they can learn everything from memory. And it's also becoming more widespread now that you see really famous musicians playing from music, especially pianists who have to (laughs) memorize so So much. So many notes. (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, what about 
and moving away from from performance notes, but what about the emphasis on on technical perfection and the fear of getting things wrong? Because obviously, and I think that goes hand in hand with a sense of competition for musicians as well. Because obviously, you know, you need you don't want to think of music as being like an Olympic sport, but actually, you need this high level of technical control in order to provide the basis to be beautifully musical, and that can lead to quite an obsessive attitude, and and also as I, I you know a sense of competition. And I wonder how you felt about those things. I mean, it's definitely something that I've thought about quite a lot. I think it's a really hard one to balance. I think the main sort of issue with it is that you you need to sort of learn how to accept your flaws. And I don't even want to call them flaws because they're just a part of being human. And I've been around a lot of different people, you know, and they've played a concert and I'm like, that was unbelievable. That was amazing. And there was one shift that didn't quite work. And then I see them, you know, beating themselves up about it and being so frustrated, actually, especially in, in a performance where kind of everything has gone right, yes. apart from one thing. Yes. And then, you know, I, on, on the other side of it, I then think, well, it, you know, makes you human. And if you play everything perfect, it's also kind of boring. But then when you're in that position, you also want everything to be as perfect as possible. Mm. But I think I did some concerts recently with Kaleidoscope and we are very open about that kind of thing. And I I really felt like it's so nice to be in a group of people where it's much more of a priority to take risks and to be emotionally vulnerable Mm -hmm. and to to push yourself to play in an exciting manner. Um, And then if that means that you miss a shift or two, it just doesn't matter because the priorities are kind of in a different place. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm really trying to go in that direction because one thing that I'm really tired of is choosing fear in those split second moments and being careful Mm -hmm. Um, and it just means that you never reach that kind of next level of intensity or whatever you might want to call it Mm -hmm. that you could do if if you just went for it but it's a really hard decision to make in that moment and sometimes I just distract myself with like I was telling someone recently that sometimes if I have a big shift coming up I'll shout the word banana in my head (laughs) in that moment just to distract my brain because it's all about being focused but not too focused that you overthink it basically yeah yeah I mean I've been to some of the kaleidoscope concerts and like and also people like Manchester Collective and stuff there's just so much happiness and joy at being Mm. on stage I feel like yeah, it just feels more natural and it feels as if it wouldn't matter mm-hmm. so much. So I think maybe that's, yeah, it's just trying to get to that position. But of course, you know, without having that dedication to perfection in the first place, you can't really get to a place where you can do that. So it is, I just think it's a difficult balance for musicians just in general. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I think also it's worth sort of keeping in mind what audiences like mm. and I think most audiences just love a charismatic performer and I think that really outweighs most other things, Mm -hmm. especially because most of, a lot of people in the world don't necessarily know about classical music and certainly won't hear like specific tiny mistakes. My partner isn't a musician and I don't think he notices what I would call my worst performance or my best performance for him. It's just whether I'm happy or not kind of thing. Um, So... Yeah, I think realizing that those differences are maybe only audible to us and the people in the know, but not necessarily to everyone else. Mm -hmm. And so what about all the time that we spend in the practice room alone (laughs) Um, and, you know, long, long hours? I mean, do you think that that has a bearing on, on mental health? I mean, obviously music is 
for the most part, collaborative, but then you have to spend a lot of time sort of in your own mind. And I mean, how do, how do you think that affects you and how do you think that affects people in general? Well, I was quite fortunate to do a lot of practice when I was younger. I think I was also discussing this with Kaleidoscope recently where some people really feel like they still have to do a lot of practice yeah. at an older age. And I think that that's often people who maybe haven't practiced as much earlier on. So they feel like they have some catching up to do. Whereas I did do quite a lot of practice and, and worked pretty hard younger when I was younger. And I think that then creates this solid foundation that you kind of need to upkeep, but you don't necessarily need to create from scratch. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the hours in the practice room, they can be quite draining. And I certainly find myself drifting off brain-wise. <laughs> um, often, I, I often have a sheet of paper next to my music stand where I write down things that I remember that I need to do later right. on. You know? um, so yeah, I think there are different kinds of practice. Sometimes I practice um, just to keep my fingers moving and, and making sure everything feels good. Sometimes I practice to like really learn the notes of a piece and do fingerings. And that's probably one of the more concentrated sure. moments of practice. So there are so many different things. But my favorite type of practice is rehearsing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that is collaborative, as you yes. say. And for example, actually yesterday I had a, a rehearsal with Jams and we were um, learning a new piece together. And it was just so wonderful to play a phrase and then really think, okay, what can we do to make this phrase more exciting and, and talk about it? And I, I love doing that. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you often do that then? Do you often sort of learn a piece together? Um, and obviously you must do, you know, a bit of work on yourself to start off with, but you know, that's actually quite an interesting way of, of doing it. Yeah. I think it's not always possible because yeah. there isn't always enough rehearsal time, yeah. but I like that the most. Uh, I, I think I try to make that possible in most cases. So to arrive, like knowing the score reasonably well and no, knowing the notes, having done all the fingering so that it's all kind of there, but then bringing shape and life to it together with other people. Um, and yeah, that would be my preferred way yeah. of doing everything. Really. <laughs> and what about other other aspects of being a musician that can be challenging? Like, for example, working in an industry that seems to have to justify his existence in terms of funding <laughs> and, you know, successive governments trying to convince them, you know, each time, yes, music is as valuable as maths and science. Do you yeah. think that that has a bearing on, on the way that musicians feel about themselves and their profession? Yeah, I think yeah. definitely it's something that a lot of us felt during the pandemic. I mean, I, I think that the decisions that were made were not incorrect. Like, you know, yeah. I guess we everyone had to cut down on what they were doing. But yeah, I, I think also in the UK, it sort of looks different than maybe in other places in the world and especially in Europe and I think the feeling that you work so hard <laughs> and commit so much of your life to doing it and that not a huge amount comes back. I personally have been very fortunate. I've never had to struggle massively. Um, I come from a pretty privileged background as well, but I know that financially for a lot of people, it's just so difficult. And, you know, having to have lots of different kinds of jobs in music and also just like living costs in yeah. the UK. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just, it's a lot, like it's a big mental load basically. And it's so valuable for education and also just for bringing people joy. And I think a lot of people don't realize how deeply music is intertwined with everything in our lives. I, I think when people think about classical music, it's only in a concert setting and, you know, people paying to come and see that concert and it maybe is a bit of a stiff environment. But the people who play on films, the people who play on video game music, they're all, you know, trained musicians who had to 
put a lot of time and effort into being able to play like that. And, and I think a lot of that we take for granted. And also, I mean, not just that, like in pop music and, and jazz music, there are all people who devote their entire lives to being good at that craft. And um, I think without it, it would be such a strange yeah. world, yeah. you know. <laughs> I mean, because that's the, that's, the, that's the thing. I mean, obviously there, there are many difficulties that we've been speaking about, but, you know, being a musician it's uh you know it's artistic and it's creative and it and it creates well-being you know so you know and it, it's in, it's massively beneficial for student learning in all areas you know students who are in schools who have some music provision do really well in other subjects and you know and it's good for you know people with dementia and other mental health conditions and all sorts of things i mean have you have you seen that at various points in your career have you seen how it's impacted positively on people in that sort of way definitely one big example of that was galleon school in london uh-huh. i went there it was quite a long time ago that i went but they do amazing things with the with their students they all learn the kadai method yeah. and everything that they learn they kind of do it through certain crafts or through music for example they were learning about the Tudors and they were growing the food that the Tudors would have eaten and and they all learn an instrument and it's just it's such an amazing school I went there and and all the students seem happy and they're engaged and focused and it also gives you a really amazing sense of confidence to know that you're investing time in a craft that really takes patience. I mean, every day you may make a tiny amount of progress, but it's really about the long-term goals with learning an instrument. Um, And that's something so valuable for a child because I think nowadays things are very instantaneous and isn't gratification is like a big thing and I I know that myself I know that my attention span has gone down massively mine too um (laughs) and so it's it's sort of a, a bit of a dying thing and I think to encourage children and whether that's like putting in time for sports or putting time for any kind of craft that takes everyday practice to make yourself better is is just so unbelievably valuable just to teach patience really oh yeah absolutely listen that I think brings us pretty much to the end of this discussion. Of course, there are so many areas we could also be talking about, but I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your really busy schedule to speak to me today about this important topic. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. So that was the lovely Laura van der Heiden being very open about the various pressures that musicians face. I mean, I'm particularly interested in what she had to say about performance, nerves and memory, as that's something that always affected me too when I was a school-age violin student and then when I was at the Royal College of Music in my teens and early 20s. So when I was younger, I had a violin teacher who insisted I play everything from memory, even a brand new piece. So after the initial lesson, if I hadn't memorized it for the next lesson the following week, she'd be deeply unimpressed. And I now understand why, because it was training me to be comfortable with that skill set so I'd be able to cope with that memory side of things, even when the pressure was much, much greater in a concert setting. But then when I became older, I moved to a different teacher who wasn't insistent on memory at all. And I became less and less likely to work up the courage to play from memory in front of an audience. And it wasn't because I didn't know the piece and you know it was because my mind would think of all the things that could go wrong you know and in the moment I'd suddenly find myself unable to remember the next note or the right fingering or the right bowing and that fear of that happening on stage would affect the performance and I'd be so afraid of forgetting something that I couldn't possibly concentrate on trying to give a committed sort of musical emotional performance so I'm in the studio with the rest of my BBC Music Magazine colleagues. We've got Jeremy Pound, Steve Wright and Michael Beek. And I'm going to ask you all 
Do you have any memories of performing in concerts or speaking in front of people or any situation where you've become very nervous or alternatively where you weren't nervous at all? Jeremy, do you have something? You've seen lots of choirs. Yes. So. <laughs> well, when I sung as a chorister when I was little, um, I had no nerves at all. And in fact, the bigger the audience, the better. Choristers can be very competitive and you wanted those big solos and you wanted the big occasions. And I just don't remember having any sort of nerves when I was little. None mm-hmm. at all. I was sung in the Sheldonian, fine. Did a Bach, a Bach solo in the Sheldonian, more than in Oxford, more than happy with that. These days, I'm a nervous wreck if I ever have to sing by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I sing in a choir, just an amateur choir. Our audiences tend to be about 20 or 30 people. And if I was asked to do a solo, it would give me a sleepless night. It really would. It's I don't know if it's an age thing or a self-consciousness thing which develops as you get older. Oh, I think mm. it is. You know, yeah. you see these young prodigies and you wonder how they handle that immense pressure. But that's because it's easier for them because they haven't developed that self-consciousness yeah. that you develop when you're in your teens. And so, you know, they don't they don't experience that those issues. Mm. How about you, Michael? Uh, well, certainly not really performing in the sense of, of musical performing, but mm. in terms of like presenting and mm-hmm. hosting, I've done plenty of like, you know, live interviews in front of audiences or pre-concert talks and things like that. And it's it's kind of terrifying, but I kind of get a buzz from it. I find if I'm totally prepared, I'm that much less nervous. But I have to prepare at the last minute. I can't think about it too far in advance. If I think about it too far in advance, I get too nervous and think I'll forget or miss something. So I will spend a couple of hours before I'm on the stage or whatever, or in front of the microphone, slamming the the research and the notes. And then it's all there, ready to go. That's very Mm. interesting. How about you, Steve? Yeah, I definitely have suffered from nerves at events. I um, used to introduce and talk to guests at Bath Festival of Literature, and I would get routinely nervous before those. And I think it was that thing you discussed in your chat. You've gone through your introduction and questions X amount of times in your head, so why is some part of your brain telling you that it's not going to be okay (laughs) after all? And there's also there's an indecision about how far to go off the script and how far to wing it, I think. I, I would like to have a script there almost as a comfort blanket because there's no scarier prospect than suddenly forgetting everything you're going to say and having nothing to turn to. But on the other hand, actually having a script with you can sometimes sometimes make me feel too tied to it and unable to, you know, just veer off in creative new directions, mm. which you probably do have the ideas and the energy to be a bit more off the cuff and organic and engaging sometimes. But I never know how much to be married to my script, you know. It's tricky, isn't it? That's yeah. the fun of it, though, isn't it? Mm. About four or five years ago, I was very flattered to be asked by Julian Lloyd Webber to go and sit on a panel at the Birmingham Conservatoire mm. about jobs in music media. And all the people were asking were about my job and, you know, what, how, how do I do it? You know, how do I get into it? And I thought, yeah, that's easy, really easy. Looking forward to that. And the moment I sat there up on a stage and looked out in the audience, I start, suddenly started to doubt my own experience, doubt my own expertise. Mm-hmm. Think, do I actually really know what I'm talking about? It was such <laughs> yeah. a weird thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it is. It's that doubt. They, your mind is working against you. And you know, yes. I don't know why. <laughs> why does it do that? I think the problem is a lot of musicians also, they have this perfectionist personality. So, I mean, that pressure is sort of adding fuel to that perfectionist fire. I mean, can we think of any successful musicians, conductors, who suffered really deeply from nerves? And any rituals that they had? Well, I'm not sure about the rituals, but I remember in the late 1990s, the Russian pianist Arkady Volodos really hit the scene in big style. He had a, a recording contract with Sony and his first couple of discs got five stars. And he is 
an arch virtuoso. You just listen to him play on these discs. You think, wow, how does he do that? And I went to hear him play Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto at the proms. Mm. I went behind stage before the concert because I knew a couple of people involved in, in the prom. And I walked past his dressing room and I was told he was a nervous wreck in there. He was kind of one of the great pianists of his time, um, but apparently he just absolutely hated performing live and was one of these people who bottled himself up, went out and performed, and then was delighted when it was over. Mm. Um, And I thought, how can someone who is that talented suffer from nerves that badly? It's it's Mm. so strange. Mm. And for him, Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto, okay, okay, it's difficult, but it was well within his comfort zone as a piece, and yet he was still this, this nervous wreck. Another pianist who I know, I'm not sure if this is so much about nerves, but again, it's about doubting yourself, as I mentioned earlier on. Catherine Stott told me, the pianist Catherine Stott told me that um, she always plays from a score these days. Uh, She might not need the score. She might actually have remembered the piece completely, but she doesn't want to have that sort of added pressure of not having the notes in front of her and having to memorise it. What happens if something kind of disappears from your mind halfway through the performance? She doesn't want that. Mm. So she just has the score there and prefers to read the score or play from the score as she's, as she's performing. And I can understand that. Totally. But like mm. we were saying about the script, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah you kind of want it net. there. You don't want it there. Yeah. <laughs> it's tricky. Yeah. Why add pressure to yourself if you don't need to? I mean, I, you know, speaking of top-level musicians, I always remember, you know, Heifetz. You know, obviously, everybody thinks of him as like this enormously gifted, effortless performer. You know, he's the gold standard of violin playing. But behind the scenes, he had this relentless practice schedule, you know, and it was to maintain his standard. And, you know, I think that was probably born of like a deep, deep-seated anxiety. And I, I think I, he had this quote, and I can't quite remember it exactly, but it was something along the lines of, if I don't practice for one day, I notice it. If I don't practice it for two days, the critics notice it. And if I don't practice for three days, the audience notices it. And so that fear kept him practicing, I think, pretty much for most of his life for many, many hours a day. So there you go. <laughs> I'd really love to know how singers overcome their nerves, because mm. it really does affect your voice mm. if you're if you're if you're nervous as a singer, and you can hear that in amateur choirs. You can hear someone who'll be singing beautifully while they're in the, in the chorus. The moment they have a solo passage, you can almost hear their voice seizing up. You can hear the yeah. kind of vibrato in the voice, unintentional vibrato because it's mm. nerves vibrato. Mm. And how do professional singers overcome that so that the sort of the big stage doesn't inhibit their mm. voice? I'd yeah. love to know. Yeah. Interesting how an element of nerves can be productive, you know, bring you up to your top game for some people. But then, So they say. So they say. <laughs> some people, but, but obviously can be counterproductive at other times. Yeah. yeah. I guess, you know, ultimately you just have to find the best way that works for you. And if that's music, using the music on stage or whatever the other ritual is, you know, it's worth it because, you know, you're bringing your music to people and it's bringing them joy. And that's mm. that's what it's really all about. Anyway, so in that spirit, let's end the episode with a clip from Laura van der Heiden's new album with pianist Jams Coleman on Chandos. The album is called Path to the Moon. And this is an excerpt from Lily Boulanger's Reflet. Mm. 